Hello, this is Gerd Leonhard and welcome to my podcast. Thanks to Forum EPFL for inviting us um, and greetings to Callum. Uh, Callum is an old friend and a fellow featurist. He's an amazing science fiction writer. He'll tell you about his latest books. I've just read Pandora's, Pandora's Brain, I think, right? That's called the latest one again. It's really great, but he has a bunch of books out that are not just science fiction, also some, some business books. And um, Callum and me have been debating for years about uh, the concept of singularity and transhumanism and what it means to be human uh, in a world of technology. And we have contrary opinions on many things, but we also have uh, matching opinions and we make a good pair debating. So. Thanks very much, and without further, further ado, let me introduce Callum Chase. Maybe, Callum, you can start by giving us a, a sort of introduction as to what you do and who you are. Bonjour tout le monde, and thank you very much indeed to the EPFL, EPFL for inviting Gert and me to continue our mm, possibly decade-long, very amiable squabble about transhumanism versus progressive humanism. Uh, as Gert said, I'm a science fiction and non-fiction writer, primarily about our future with AI. Uh, my core belief is that we are in a period of exponential change and that very few people have a clue about the, the importance of that, uh, the amazing changes it's going to lead to, and I'm very optimistic about it. So let's start with a definition of transhumanism. So transhumanists predict and advocate the use of technology to enhance human life, including longevity, mood, and physical and cognitive abilities. Predict and adv advocate the use of technology to improve human life. It was interesting that in the, in the press this morning, there was a report about a woman who's had a brain implant which she can flick us, it enables her to flick a switch when she gets suicidally depressive. And this is a classic example of the kind of technologies that are enhancing our lives. So I'll dig into uh, what various aspects of that, but let's start with a, a little bit of history. A big part of this is about including, uh, is about extending life, lifespan and health span. And of course, that goes back to the beginning of humanity, really. The Epic of Gilgamesh is perhaps about. Uh, a, a powerful leader seeking immortality. But the first use of the word transhumanism came in a paper in 1940 by a Canadian philosopher, which I, who I doubt anybody's heard of, W.D. Lighthall. Uh, but it became better known in 1957 when a fairly famous uh, biologist called Ju Julian Huxley wrote an article uh, in which he said, the present limitations and miserable frustrations of our existence could in large measure be surmounted. Sounds to me like a good plan. Here are a couple of the key figures in transhumanism uh, in its last decade or so. Uh, I'm, I'm very fond of this chap at the top left, F.M. Esfandiri, an Iranian, who said, I am a 21st century person who was accidentally launched in the 20th century. I have a deep nostalgia for the future. I think that puts it very well. Uh, he renamed himself, formally renamed himself FM 2030. And in the 70s, he was having meetings with people about how we could expect, extend lifespan and improve the quality of human life. One of the better known transhumanists around the world is Ray Kurzweil, famous for books like Are We Spiritual Machines? and The Singularity is Near. He's been saying for a remarkably long time that we will have what he calls a, te a technological singularity in 20, um, 2045, he thinks that we will create artificial general intelligence in 2029, and then we will go on to merge with it in about 2045. And he's been saying that for literally decades. Uh, he didn't invent the use of the word trans, uh, singularity in, in this context. It was actually first used by uh, a man called Klaus von Neumann, one of the founding fathers of modern computing, uh, but he probably popularized it more than anybody else. And he has a business partner, Peter Diamandis, who's also very well known, uh, who's the founder of the XPRIZE Foundation, which is doing remarkable work. You have interesting figures like Natasha and Max Moore, uh, Nick Bostrom, who wrote the seminal book, Sing uh, Superintelligence, David Pierce, and my friend David Wood, who runs London Futurism, uh, London Futurists. And the 
transhumanist main transhumanist organization has been renamed H plus. I think that might give you a clue um, to the fact that there's a wide range of people who call themselves transhumanists and they have very different views uh, politically, particularly you get people quite far left and people very far right who are transhumanist. I think I would put myself somewhere in the middle. So let's, let's dig into some of the, uh, the, the particular aspects that we're talking about. So the technologies that transhumanists look to, to enhance human life, the big one obviously is artificial intelligence. Um, and that will be, is starting to be and will increasingly be very powerful in creating personalized and precision medicine, uh, including drugs, uh, helping with genetic manipulation and organ replacement. And over the next 20 years or so, we are going to, uh, unless we trip ourselves up with populism or something silly with nuclear weapons, we are going to extend human health span so that a very great number of people uh, live happy and healthy lives into their hundreds. And we might even start to breach what currently looks like the hard stop of 120 years. I'm sure you all know that in 2012, there was a big bang in AI when a branch of statistics called machine learning, and in particular, a subset of that called deep learning, was successfully applied to artificial intelligence. And that is what has made artificial intelligence so obviously powerful. But we are only at the beginning of, uh, of, of the growth in power of, of AI. So I say that in the definition that transhumanists predict the, uh, the use of technology to enhance human life, obviously the only thing we know about any prediction is that it's wrong. We just don't know whether, which, which direction it's wrong in, but there are some trends that you can see that unless uh, we trip ourselves up, are going to produce remarkable changes. And one of them is the exponential growth in the power of our computers. And that drives an awful lot else of, of our uh, rapidly changing lives. So exponential growth is a, a phrase that you hear a lot, um, but it's very hard to bear it in mind when you're thinking about the future. So here's an example, an illustration of the power of exponential growth. If you walked, 30 steps, 30 ordinary steps, you'd go, let's say 30 meters. If you could walk 30 exponential steps, your first step would be a meter, your second would be two, your third would be four, your fourth step would be eight, and your 30th step would take you to the moon. In fact, that's not quite true. Your 29th step would take you to the moon and your 30th step would bring you all the way back because it's a doubling process. Um, now, if you, if you apply that kind of growth to our compute power, this is what you get. We've had this in the past, and that's why smartphones today have more power than uh, NASA had when they sent Neil Armstrong to the moon, but it's continuing. And so assuming this exponential growth continues, the machines that we have in 10 years from now will be 128 times more powerful than the machines we have today. And the machines we have in 20 years time will be 8,000 times more powerful than the machines we have today. And then in 30 years time, they will be a colossal million times more powerful than the machines we have today. How powerful are the machines we have today? Well, GPT-3, which is the cutting edge natural language processing system uh, developed by OpenAI in California, co-founded by Elon Musk, is able to write articles and poems um, and letters, and it's able to code. Can't write novels yet, I'm glad to say, um, and it goes wrong a lot, but it's about one thousandth of the power of a human brain based on a very, very crude metric that it uses 170 billion parameters, and we have about 170 trillion synapses, and they are very roughly analogous. I mean, it's a really crude measure, but you, you, could, you could say that as for argument's sake. So when we, have a when we have machines a million times more capable than the machines we have today, they're gonna to do remarkable things. That is why transhumanists are quite comfortable in predicting very dramatic and very rapid changes uh, in, in our lives. And it's often said that we are in the fourth industrial revolution. And I think that is profoundly wrong. I think it's very misleading because it leads people to underestimate 
to, to misunderstand the gravity of what's happening. I think we're in the fourth human revolution. The first was about 70,000 years ago, and it was called the cognitive revolution. A uh, lot of debate about when it was, but it was when we acquired sophisticated language and we were able to, to collaborate in a way that no other species has ever been able to do, which meant that we fairly puny primates could kill mammoths and we could build pyramids and we became the apex predator on the planet. And then uh, when climate change allowed, about 10,000 years ago, different parts of the world, we had the agricultural revolution, which was a really rotten deal for individual humans. It's much better being, a, much more fun being a hunter-gatherer than a subsistence farmer, but it was great for the species. It led to the creation of food surpluses and uh, cities, and cities are machines for innovation. So a few thousand years later, we had the industrial revolution started in 1712 in Britain. And we're still in the industrial revolution. Many parts of the world are sort of only halfway through it, but the industrialized nations, uh, are, are, they're still in it too. But we are also in a, an entirely new revolution, not the fourth industrial revolution, but the information revolution, which started um, around about 1960. This one is gonna have even more profound impacts than any of the others. So I, I strongly, denigrate the uh, term, the fourth industrial revolution. Transhumanists also advocate the use of technologies to enhance, uh, uh, enhance human experience, human lives. We think it's a good thing if we enhance human lives. We don't say that everybody has to have uh, to live longer, to live healthier, um, to suffer from fewer illnesses, to enhance their physical and cognitive abilities and to be more cheerful. Not everybody should do it. If you don't want to do it, that's, that's, that's up to you. Um, but we don't think that those of us who want to should be prevented from it. Now, a very important thing to say is that transhumanists are not blind to the potential downsides. Any technology has potential downsides. Fire can keep you alive. It can warm you. It can also kill you. Uh, nuclear power obviously has positive and, and negative sides. So do hammers. Any technology has a positive and a negative side. There are always ethical considerations about how you roll them out. But uh, if you hold up the introduction of, say, medical therapies for years and years and years, lots of people will die. And uh, many transhumanists would, would argue against that. In fact, we do, do think that there's a moral obligation to reduce suffering if possible. Um, and some of the things that transhumanists want to see, such as uh, health, longer health spans, are necessary for society. In 2013, the US national debt was um, about 10 trillion. Today, it's about 30 trillion. And in 2026, it'll be about 50 trillion. That is 50% of world GDP. It's not sustainable. We don't know when it becomes a crisis, but it will become a crisis. A lot of that money is spent on healthcare, and we could spend a lot less if we all lived healthier lives for longer. And the good news is that is happening. Longevity, one of the key elements of transhumanism, is an area where a great deal more investment is going in uh, now than, than any time in the past. There's a, a new fund just got launched a, a few days ago called the Longevity Vision Fund, which is seeking to, uh, to, to provide a billion dollars to research funds, which are specifically to, to research initiatives, which were specifically targeting extending health span and indeed extending lifespan. Uh, until quite recently, aging was not regarded as a treatable uh, disease or problem by the medical establishment. And that is finally changing. So I've got a couple of minutes in which I want to just address one or two of the critiques that people throw at transhumanism. Firstly, they say it's playing God and it's not natural. Well, we've always been transhumanists in a sense. Uh, I wear glasses. I'm sure some of the people in the audience wear glasses, although you're obviously a lot younger than me. Um, and people are wearing cochlear implants. Uh, we have photocorrectomy, which is surgery to improve our lenses. People use Viabra, Viagra, they use Botox, these plastic surgery. We have Paralympians. We 
enhance our uh, cognitive and physical cognitive and physical abilities with technology all the time it's what we do and we shouldn't stop doing it just because we're getting better and better technologies um, if god wanted us not to use these technologies he she or it wouldn't have given them to us um, there's another critique which says that death gives meaning to life and personally i think this is nonsense i think it's nonsense for two reasons firstly i don't get any meaning from death and i don't know anybody who does i get my meaning from my friends my family uh, my projects my hobbies my work and i don't spend any time thinking about death and thinking oh well because i'm going to die in x number of years i'm going to enjoy today in fact the great majority of us think very little about death we avoid thinking about death we don't take it seriously because it's such a nasty fact of life at the moment that we're going to lose this wonderful thing we call life uh, we just ignore it and that's evidenced by the fact that uh, we don't spend the time to to think properly about our funeral arrangements most of us so i think it's it's just not true that death gives meaning to life uh, and with that i think i will wrap up with this comment uh, i don't believe that technology is taking us to dystopia hollywood likes to believe that because it makes a better story I also don't think it's taking us to utopia. Utopia is A, boring, and B, impossible. I think we are, we should, we should aim at protopia. protopia. Protopia is a word invented by Kevin Kelly, actually, the founder of Wired magazine. And it means a world in which everything is really, really good. And it just keeps getting better. Thank you for your attention. Well, Callum, well, thanks very much. That, that was great. It was a great overview of all the issues. So um, I'm going to launch it to my part now. It will be a little bit longer, I'm afraid, but I'm sure you're used to that one. So um, uh, welcome again, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be here with you today. So I'm going to speak to you about this today. Um, just like utopia, which I like the term, I'm proposing a, a new variation on the transhumanism. I call it progressive humanism. And of course it has been used before, you know, most of these things have been used before. But basically my position on this is that we should use technology to do great things, uh, as much as Callum is suggesting, uh, but we should not use technology to fundamentally uh, change us in such a way that we're no longer human. As we're going in this transition here, you know, you can, you can see that everywhere. Um, this is one of my favorite graphs. I'm going to take myself out here for a second, right? Uh, moving towards a new place to where we are no longer, yeah, some people would say limited by our own biology. Right? And basically what's happening here is that we have a great quote here from Max Moore that I found yesterday, when he says, uh, Mother Nature, uh, we are grateful for what you have made us. No doubt you made the best intent. However, we must say that they have in many ways done a poor job with the human condition. That's Max Moore in his manifesto, the Transhumanist Manifesto. And right underneath that, the philosophy that accepts death must itself be considered dead. Uh, this is Alan Harrington, going to what Callum just said a little bit earlier. So the philosophy here is to do away with death and to fix the flaws of nature and to reprogram humans, kind of like this. Yeah, I love this picture, I've been using it for a decade. Yeah, to where we can become superhuman or become as God. You know, I, I don't believe in God. We can dis discuss that later, but I'm not um, religious in that sense. Um, but this is kind of the intent, right? Like we can go to a place that is completely different than before. We can become superhuman. We can go science fiction to science fact. Again, one of my favorite movies, yeah, Blade Runner. And that's really what's happening around us. And we look at all these trends, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality, bioengineering, uh, Zuckerberg's amazing uh, metaverse, you know, I would not, not trust Zuck on this very much. But basically all that stuff is leading us to a place to where we can safely say, well, our future is no longer limited by what is possible. That's maybe the next 10 years after that, no. By what we want, right? There's a key question that's really changing a lot as technology is becoming exponentially fast, as Callum was explaining. I think it's also converging the industries for example, pharma, medical, life science, and technology, and it's adding com uh, combinatory products. Things are completely different than at any time before, for example, the self-driving car, the electric car, and so on. 
And basically what's happening here is now we're finding ourselves in a place where we have to decide what we want to be because it's no longer just this ominous digital transformation, the moneymaker, you know, for industries and, and companies. It is a social transformation that's going on right now also because of the COVID crisis. And finally, it's a human transformation. And that is where the big question lies. Uh, so if we progress in the next 10 years towards the human transformation, the question is going to be quite simple, no longer about, you know, what is possible in the future or how do we do this, how much does it cost and, and so on. But what kind of future do we want our children to have, our grandchildren to have? And do we want a, a, a future that is based on machine logic or governed by machines? Do we want a future that's based on human logic? Many people say human logic is flawed and we're no good anyway. Uh, great philosophical debate about whether humans are basically bad or good, you know, we'll discuss shortly uh, later. But let me start here with one of the key statements of transhumanism and also of the singularity is that organisms, people, you know, us, right, we are essentially data, we're algorithms. Uh, Harari says that in his books, that's basically where we're going to become technology, right? And a great quote here by Ray Kurzweil who says, the essential thing is to recognize that consciousness is a biological process. And I don't agree with that at all. I think it may be biological in the sense of ultimately us discovering how it works. Uh, but not in the sense of current algorithms. You know, the current algorithms are not intelligent, they're not biological, they are not human, and we are certainly not just data, but key point for discuss for later. But this kind of concept I call reductionism. And this is one of my heavy complaints for transhumanists is, you know, to reduce the world to technology and data information uh, and science ultimately and say, that's it, right? That's what we can explain and we're just like machines. To me, that's a ridiculous concept. And, and this idea of reductionism has this kind of uh, funnel effect right, that we, we are seeing now, for example, in social media. All we have to do is stick in our damn human stuff, the stuff that makes us weak, you know, motivation, free will, intuition, imagination. And like Facebook, you know, we can suck that up into a new digital environment where out comes a nice clean feed, right? That's Reductionism, data, algorithms, automation, efficiency, optimization, and we can function well. That is the concept of reductionism. And that is what I'm worried about when I think about transhumanism, that it will take out the things that make us human, mystery, serendipity, discovery. And that's also the logic behind uh, dataism. I think also coined by Harari, uh, Yuval Harari, uh, basically believing that data is it and that we have to trust data. Now here I wanna play a short clip by the former CEO of IBM, Gini Rometty, talking about IBM Watson or the former IBM Watson because both have been kind of defunct, right? both her and the, and the Watson project is going in a different direction. However, it is valuable. So I'll play the clip for you so you can enjoy it. This is a world that's gonna solve so many problems that aren't solved. And so, as I always say, we'll solve the unsolvable, like healthcare, like risk, like food safety, and on the other side, everyday life. Um, in fact, I've, I've really been bold. I think in the next five years, you'll use this kind of technology to make almost any important decision. And it could be... A yeah, interesting, right? You know, solve the unsolvable. I mean, this is a grand dream of humanity, right? We can solve all that stuff and technology solves every single problem. David Pierce, leader, uh, a transhumanist leader, great quote here. He calls it the hedonistic imperative. Hedonism means you know, kind of a little bit of happiness, you know, satisfying ourselves. It outlines how genetic engineering and nanotechnology will abolish suffering. That's the idea. And then he says, it's instrumentally rational and ethically mandatory to do this. And then he says, then we're going to enter the state of supreme well-being, become gen genetically pre-programmed norm. That sounds all like really scary. <laughs> And I wonder where this is going. Uh, I know where it's going. Uh, this idea that technology will save us. We can't save ourselves. We're too stupid. We're too evil to, we're not paying enough attention. You know, we're not collaborating. So technology can do this. Peter Diamandis, another one of the singularity leaders, I love his books, but this is a statement that really makes me wonder, right? As we begin to liberate our thoughts, our memes, our consciousness from the biological constraints that we presently have, 
it will allow us to evolve faster and faster. Now that is a typical Silicon Valley mantra, right? We, ha we have to go faster and on top of it, we have to make a lot more money. That is imperative, of course, in the culture of Silicon Valley. And here's the best one, right? by the Transhumanism Handbook, Newton Lee, who says transhumanism will save democracy from device, right? We're going to automate uh, democracy and we're going to basically get a machine in charge because, again, we're too stupid, right? Technology will save the day and humans have to get out of the way. I think there's a totally flawed assumption. Uh, and I'm willing to, to really dive into this, this idea of saying, okay, let's have a president that's an AI. That uh, would be better than a human because humans are flawed and of course we've seen many you know, flawed humans in the last 18 months, but also a couple of good ones. And then this idea of saying, okay, let's put an AI there that knows everything, that is basically everywhere, uh, that in the end knows everyone, that can do everything, right? And here's my answer to this, purely intelligent creatures, whether they're man or machine, are a detriment to society. We need more than intelligence. Uh, it's not enough to be intelligent. And I think we've seen how some really intelligent people in the past have been the detriment of society. My belief really is that you know, machines are binary until we get to quantum computing maybe. So there are no zeros and ones. They don't know anything in between. Humans do. We are very good at, at reading between the lines because we are what I call multinary, right? We are at the place to where we can look at overriding issues, purpose, passion, critical thinking. Maybe machines will learn that eventually, but should they? Uh, at this point, they could become generally intelligent, AGI, and that is a real issue in my book, right? Because we, we still have the Moravec paradox. Uh, this is Austrian-American researcher, I think he's still alive and doing great work. He says, whatever is very simple for a human is very hard for a computer and vice versa. And I think that's going to remain the cornerstone of artificial intelligence, that it should remain the cornerstone. We don't want human, uh, machines to do what humans are doing. As Stuart Russell, UC Berkeley professor, who wrote a great book called Human, human Compatible on AI, as he likes to say, we should be looking for competence in machines, not consciousness. Yeah, there is a difference. Uh, again, subject to debate for later. Right? Here, a great clip again from, from the uh, second Blade Runner, right? Where he talks to his fake girlfriend and uh, she can be amazing. Obviously, they, she's like a hologram, right? And then he gets a super hologram. In the end, he realizes it rains, the power goes out and she's gone, right? She is, and he's very depressed. So here's the bottom line on what we see around us. Technology is very good at giving us what we want, but not so good at giving us what we need because technology doesn't do that. And this is why I don't want too much technology pretending to give us what we need. I think it's a giant business model issue, right? It's, it's something that obviously is gonna make money. And now I have, we have this pyramid of work that's changing as a result of what technology does because technology is capable of intellectual knowledge and logic, machine learning, deep learning. Clearly that is happening, understanding language. That's machine turf now. And here is the human turf, right? And this is what we have to focus on in the future when we think about what we want to be apart from technology. AI is on a different level than AI, and that's the way that it could possibly collaborate. So I'm wondering, and I will debate it with Callum a little bit later, is this just a giant business idea? You know, the, 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 most, the biggest business idea ever uh, in the, in the, around the world is, is to substitute technology, uh, take out the humans and create a giant business around it. You know this clip, and I think uh, I'll play it so you can remind yourself. Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. Yeah, commerce, right? Commerce, more human than human, that's the goal. And we've reached that goal here, right? We have, of course, all these amazing companies here, making so much money, the tech giants have been exploding in value in the COVID crisis. And if commerce is the goal, I think we reached this, but it shouldn't be the goal for us, period. And I think Tyrell, you know, the, the uh, Blade Runner, first Blade Runner tycoon, you know, Elon Musk is kind of like the next Tyrell. And, and that kind of worries me. Uh, another question from this. Twitter, will you be able to save and replay memories in the future? Uh, yes, I think uh, in the future, you'll be able to save and re replay memories. Um, I mean, this is obviously sounding increasingly like a Black Mirror episode. Um, yeah, Elon, yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah, can we, can we use that to upload our thoughts? Of course we can. 
Imagine what kind of business that would be. I mean, we're not far away from Black Mirror and those discussions. So we're heading towards huge ethical challenges on this, okay? This is the challenge. Technology is great, it does great things, but it doesn't have ethics. It doesn't understand values. It has no ethics and it shouldn't have ethics. And this is what's greatly worrying me about transhumanism, getting too close to technology that doesn't give a damn on what we're all about. As uh, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, likes to say, technology can do great things, but it doesn't want to do great things. It doesn't want anything. So who's going to want it then? Who's in charge? You've seen the film The Social Dilemma. And that is, I mean, social media right now, and Facebook in particular, is the biggest menace to democracy that we can imagine. And there have been countless articles in the last couple of days, despite the outage, of course, right? Ethics is, knowing, is having the power to do something, knowing the difference, and knowing what is the right thing to do. And so many technology companies already don't know what is the right thing to do. And of course, it's hard to know what is the right thing to do. But would a machine know that? And who's in charge, right? And when we think about the right thing to do, here's a, a paralyzed man who can walk again using an exoskeleton, to go back to Callum's example of the eyeglasses and, of course, the, the, the cochlear implants. Amazing that we should definitely do that. But here's a guy who's taken that same principle, you, cur, you, you her, H-E-R-R, -R, right? And he's building prosthesis for people to actually replace their legs. He hasn't really propagated that very much yet, but that's the concept, right? How would you react if somebody says, I have two million dollars, I want better legs for running? Is that okay? And how do you feel about that? Would it just be for the rich? Again, Elon, with his Neuralace, Neuralink project, right, basically putting electrodes into the human brain to allow us to upload to the internet. Is that science fiction? Pretty much. Is it a good idea? No. I call that too much of a good thing. Can be a very bad thing. And I think that's definitely too much of a good thing. So let me do some bottom lines and then we'll have a debate, okay? So bottom line first, this is the kind of question we should ask ourselves. What kind of future do you want? And what does it mean for policy and politics and decision making and, and wisdom? Right? I uh, present progressive humanism. The idea of using technology and on top of that all the things that make us human to maintain them and to protect them, ethics, values, mystery, compassion, and all the other stuff that we talk about all the time, purpose, passion, imagination. And on top of that, I propose that we should, of course, not make it human-centric in the sense that all that matters is humans. We should take a wider view, and I call that people, planet, purpose, and prosperity. And that includes everything on the agenda. Progressive humanism would use technology to go further. I call it, you know, basically awesome humans on top of amazing technology. And I believe we should not go into the future by having the sort of worrisome approach that many have in Europe or the totally super excited approach that many people have in China without questioning things. We should not go with fear but not with stupidity either uh, and make decisions that impact millions of people because the future isn't black or white between humans and machines. It's both. Right? There's no such thing as a simple answer. We have to be proactive sometimes and courageous and take a risk. And then we have to also have respect and, and have caution and wisdom. And who decides this? And this is the biggest question. How do we actually do this? Right? One of my principles I set forth in my book, Technology vs. Humanity, says that the more that we connect, the more we must protect what makes us human. And protect in a wise way, not overprotect in the sense of keeping stuff back. That is not going to happen. Right? But let's not leave those decisions of, of that handshake between humans and machines. Let's le not leave that to big tech. That's what we are currently doing. That is a very bad idea. That ends up uh, being another Facebook times 1000 in the near future when we trust our human intelligence to machines. So bottom line on this is, Technology is a present, we should accept it, we should use it. But when we use it too much, it turns into a bomb. It can turn into a bomb. So we, we're going to need regulation on this, like artificial general intelligence. We're going to need what I call the Digital Ethics Council, the Council of the Wise People, Aristotle and others. Yeah. And it's very, very important. Aristotle once said, you know, we think too much about the means of how we get there, but we don't think too enough about the end, the destination that we want to get to. So I think a council like this would be a great idea because in the end, I think we must maintain the right to be only human. Right? 
to be unaugmented, you know, not to have to go along just like we are being forced today to carry a mobile phone, which is uh, a marginal concern really, but the right to remain unaugmented. That is also at risk when we talk about transhumanism. Bottom line is, as I say in my book, we need to embrace technology but not become technology. And there is a very big difference. So I want to thank you very much for listening. I made a, a, a film recently called The Good Future uh, and that outlines a, a, a few more things. It's thegoodfuturefilm.com and of course there's my book that you may know. Let's, let's start the debate. Um, I think you set up an Aunt Sally of transhumanism. I think you set up a, a sort of a straw man version of it and then you attack it. You suggest that transhumanists are somehow um, unemotional, almost unconscious, interested only in profit and rational superiority, and we ha they have no imagination, they have no flair, and I don't, I don't think any of those things are true. Uh, I think transhumanists, actually I think transhumanists uh, are, are great people because they're very optimistic. They believe in a brighter, better future because of technology. They look back at the last 300 years of humanity and see that most of the things that we, um, the, the things that make modern life great, the fact that we don't all die before we're five, the fact that, you know, such a high proportion of women don't die in childbirth, um, the fact that many of us can read and write, most of us don't smoke these days, etc., etc. These things have all happened in the last 300 years. And guess what? It's because of technology that that's happened. Uh, and also because of capitalism. You and I will never agree about this. I think capitalism is the best uh, system we have ever invented to allocate scarce resources. Um, and we project it forwards. And it's not unreasonable to think that technology will continue to improve our lives and make them much, much better. So transhumanists are very optimistic. Transhumanists have more fun. So I think you set up an art tally. Let, let's take it one argument at a time. First, of course, I've met many of the transhumanists and I've done many events and I, I know that they're good people. Uh, it's not about the people themselves. I think the, the concept right, of saying we're going to alleviate human suffering by reprogramming and, and basically finding ways to cut away all that suffering pieces but keep the rest. Right? Marshall McLuhan once said, when we extend man, humans, right, we also amputate things. And that is so true for television, is true for the mobile phone. And the problem is not with the amputation period. If something is sick, of course, you may have to amputate, right? But uh, that's not the principal problem, but how much and how often. And I think the dangerous uh, precedent I see with transhumanism is here to say, we can solve all of that just by doing away with the stuff we no longer need, like an appendix. You know? And to so, me, so that is woman, a great reduction. The woman who was reported in the papers today, who's had a, who's had a neural implant, uh, which when she activates it, it, it removes her suicidal thoughts. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? You know, in principle, I think that anything that helps people to deal with their actual issues, like, you know, you, you're paralyzed, you get an exoskeleton and you train for two years. And I think this is all good. And fighting cancer by genetic engineering, also good, right? But taking the same technology and saying, okay, let, let me see, uh, I have this issue with, you know, I don't feel joyous enough or I, I can't find happiness, so I'm going to engineer it one way or the other. You know, basically taking it one step further, everybody wants to be happy, so you can call that sickness or not, whatever, you know, not being happy. But, you know, I think there's a, there, there's a cutoff at a certain point where it's frivolous. And, and, uh, who, should and make, where, who should make the decision about where that cutoff is? Yeah, but that's, a, that's exactly a, a, a very difficult question. So, so, so here's, nice. here's, here's a proposal. Here's a proposal. Yeah. That woman who's had that implant, I think you and I would both agree that it's perfectly reasonable that she should have it. Because if she doesn't have it, sooner or later she's going to kill herself and she's going to have a ton of misery in the meantime. So we would all we mostly agree that that's, that's a good thing. Now, unless you can demonstrate harm, that to me that's the principle, unless you can demonstrate harm, if somebody wants to augment themselves, they should be allowed to. But, but Callum, listen, you, you're confusing two different things. Sickness, issues, problems, diseases, and technological solutions to me are perfectly fine 
if we can uh, find a way not to have them grow into other things like military use and so on, that's fine. But uh, the idea of saying that this woman may kill herself and that we prevent that from happening and also the going further of saying that uh, we use all these technologies to essentially pro prohibit and prevent all of it, then we not only have the question, question of it being affordable, but also the question of how will the other ones that don't do this compete? Right? So but why, why would you assume that the other ones wouldn't have it? The, the history of technology over and over and over again is that you start with a very expensive version, which only, is only available to rich people, and it doesn't work very well. Rich people are the guinea pigs, and then the producers go up the learning curve and make a version which is available to everybody. The, the classic example is the smartphone, first introduced in as recently as 2007, was it, or 2008? And now it's available all over the world. You know, billions and billions of people have got these things, which initially were just incredibly expensive playthings for rich people. That's what ha happens with technology. Yeah, and the reason, the reason why it happens is very simple. If you make something that's available to billions of people as a company, you make a lot more money than if you make a diamond encrusted thing that is only available to Larry Page and, and Jeff Bezos. Well, but two things about that. First, of course, uh, technology is a godsend in that regard, free phone calls and all that stuff. But, you know, you know, of course, that there are many, many issues related to the mobile phone and overuse of the mobile phone and uh, Instagram loneliness and, and teenagers killing themselves on social networks and manipulation and all that stuff that comes with the mobile phone, right? What we've done so far is we've said, okay, this is great and we'll make money with this. And of course, it's helping GDP and so on. But the externalities, the consequences of this overconnectivity and what we have right now, somebody else will take care of it. Right? This is what we've done so far. And the mobile phone is harmless in that sense that it's outside of me. Right? When it's inside of me, augmented reality glasses, virtual reality, brain-computer interfaces, right? a whole different game, even when it's free. Because in the end, you know, it's not like the vaccine where we can say, okay, uh, it, it, it's not really voluntary anymore to take the vaccine or not. You know, in theory it is, but in reality it's not. Uh, and that's because it's existential, right? And, and we're getting everybody to do this. We want to solve the problem. This is different. This is optional, right? Enhancing. And, and so the optional thing to make the optional, the new normal, just because of better performance. I think if we can solve cancer and we have, we have the idea of saying we analyze your genome and you get predictive analytics and so on. That seems like a good thing, right? But that should be available to everybody. And also it should be still optional to want to know if you're going to do this or not. In so, my so, if I, so if I understand you correctly, you're saying that um, there should be a sort of like a panel of wise people, men and women, uh, who would decide whether a technology is being used to cure an ill, in which case good, but if it's used to <clears throat> augment and improve what is already some sort of a baseline of normality, not good. And I completely disagree with that. I think if, if you had a choice, say you could have a neural implant, um, which took a lot, somebody's life experience from being humdrum and okay, but boring, to being full of delight and full of potential and love and joy. First, I, 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 don't, think, I don't think people should be stopped from having that implant. <laughs> Well, well, that's already a bad assumption. I don't think technology can do that. Happiness doesn't exist in an implant or in the, in the cloud or on the screen. It's something that we must find for ourselves as we are now. Uh, if you're not happy, it has a thousands of reasons, but I can make a chemical happiness. That's called a drug, right? <laughs> and I can, I can produce that. And people do that. Is it, is it okay? Should we make the normal? No, we should not. Uh, and I think that that is basically a choice that people make if they want to have a drug-induced or implant-induced happiness. I think that whole assumption is wrong that, that technology can So, so you do think people do should be able to take a drug if it makes them happy? Well, I, I, let's, let's say, relatively speaking, I think it should not be illegal in the sense of, like, you know, illegal to kill somebody or so. But, you know, we have rules on all these things, like drugs, alcohol, beer, smoking, and most people know how to handle it, right? But when, when something becomes really powerful, like, just think for a second, right? If if your augmented reality glasses that Apple is working on, or the virtual reality from Facebook, if that becomes totally cheap, available every time, except for when they're down, you know, then I, I may feel like I'm kind of off without it, right? And what would that, what kind of society would we create there? Well, I would feel very off 
if I don't have electricity, running water, and above all, internet connection. But, but that's different. I, that, I that's am reliant base. on technology. We all we all are. We most of us yeah, can't yeah, find our way from A to B because we got used to using not, smart maps. And and I like think I that's a earlier. perfectly acceptable <laughs> price. <laughs> yeah, it's not a black or white question. Water, electricity, and cholesterol pills, or whatever, that is one level. But this level is exponentially further along. And I, I've said many times before, what is okay exponentially on the lower part of the scale, you know, two, three, four, uh, eight, and so on, may be completely off at 256 because of all of the amplifying of effects. Right? And for example, you can say 300 million people are taking diabetes medicine, right? And we can solve that with technology some way or the other. Okay, but uh, then the next issue of saying, okay, now we have a million people uh, getting a genetic engineering uh, fix because that may prevent uh, diabetes. You know, that's another thing altogether, exponentially different. And, and do you think that would be a bad thing? I'm not necessarily saying it would be a bad thing. I think we have to be careful about where that takes us and what it means. And also, most importantly, what we have right now in the transhumanism debate is clearly the most expensive things and they will get cheaper but should everybody be able to do cryonics and, yes. and kind of you know why not <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> yeah no, uh, i think we have more important problems to fix than than uh, everybody trying well, to well arguably not on... i mean at the moment 150,000 people die of age every every day around the world that's a catastrophe if we could put those people on ice and bring them back in some decades in the future when the technology is available. That's a good thing. I mean, you know, we've got to deal with whether the planet can sustain us, and there's all sorts of interesting questions about that. But in principle, stopping death is a just a good thing, Gerd. I, I think it, it can be a good thing, not in all cases. I mean, for example, to make it a default that everybody gets cryonic, so to yeah, speak. Absolutely. Right? And Why, the, who, the, and who, the if not, who gets to choose who lives and dies? Yeah, I think that's a difficult decision, but we've made that decision in many other fields. You know, uh, for example, nuclear energy, we've made that decision, uh, what is okay and what's not okay. And there are many overlapping areas and we have lots of issues with that, but we have a, a nuclear non-proliferation treaty. I think we need an artificial general intelligence non-proliferation treaty, which <laughs> maybe it's too late, I don't know. But, you know, we need an agreement of how far do we go and what is ultimately not okay anymore. For example, the concept, AGI, one thing, but the other one is to say, I'm going to cut my legs off to get new ones because I can, I can run quicker. You know, well, if people want to do that, I would consider that, you know, akin to a crime parenthesis. People could still do that just like I do now. But it shouldn't just be normal. I mean, I, I think that's a perversion. Well, let's take that example. It's a good example. If somebody produced a technology which was proven uh, to my satisfaction that it would, couldn't, couldn't cause me any harm, and it gave me a pair of legs which enabled me to jump over tall buildings, and uh, also, you know, because it would be easy to replace the parts, uh, nothing would go wrong with these legs, and I could afford it, I would do it. And you know what? I think an awful lot of people would. Initially, I think there'd be enormous, enormous resistance to it. The Daily Mail would have a campaign arguing against it. Uh, the Daily Mail, for those of you students in Switzerland who don't know, is an appalling thing that people call a newspaper here. Um, and But once people got used to the idea, as with smartphones, when smartphones came out, people thought, oh, these things are, are stupid toys for yuppies. Um, and look at these pretentious people who are wandering around with it. And now everybody's got one. I think in a, in a matter of just a few years, everybody would want these wonderful legs. And why should we not have them? I think you have to prove harm. If you can't prove harm, let people augment their lives. <laughs> I, I think there's plenty, plenty. I mean, there's, there's piles of harm here, right? For example, the again, the inequality that occurs, at, at least in the beginning of the curve, until everybody can have those fabulous legs, right? And, and then the distortion of humanity that happens by saying, okay, what else am I going to be doing to improve my happiness and my... Uh, and it's kind of a never-ending thing. And where do we end up? We're ending, we're ending up becoming machines. Um, because, because it would be feasible, right? And I think that's, in principle, a very bad decision. Okay, you know, so this, this takes us on to um, another subject, which we've discussed yeah. before, which I think we, we ought to cover before we open it up to the floor, which is this question of humanness and whether being human is in some way sacrosanct and we should protect it. Um, there is a difficulty in defining what hum humanness is. I, I personally have a fairly simple 
definition of humanness, uh, a human is a biological entity which can create other humans in the traditional manner. Uh, that's, that's the traditional <laughs> definition of a species. And frankly, being human does not seem to me to be the most important aspects of us. What seems to me to be the most important aspect of me, you and everybody else I know is our consciousness. Uh, and as you rightly say, machines at the, at the moment don't have consciousness, but interestingly, they may well in the future. But our consciousness is the most important thing. Now, if somebody said to me, Callum, I can uh, give you this technology, you will live inside a robot or you will live in a virtual world and you will no longer be able to create humans in the traditional way. You won't have the human body, which enables you to call yourself human in that sense. But you will have uh, a million times the intelligence you have now. You'll have a million times the emotional range that you have now. You'll, you'll be able to love your partner a million times more powerfully, a million times more joyfully. I wouldn't say no. It sounds to me a little bit like Mark Zuckerberg saying when you're on Facebook, you can make thousands of new friends, you know, and look how it how that has turned out. Somehow you know, I don't I think Mark Zuckerberg of... makes my life a million times more, more powerful. Yeah, no, no. I mean, these are promises, right? I, I don't believe those promises. I'm sorry. I just, you know, I think it does come down to what you believe to be possible, what you believe to be true, and what you believe to be desirable, you know. And like I said before, I... I, for, for my own life, you know, I'd rather be more human than to be faster or quicker or well, what wiser. What do you mean by yeah. being more human? Well, being more human in the sense of having more empathy, compassion, understanding, emotions. I don't think that's you know, human. That, that's extraordinarily anthropocentric anthropocentric to think that yeah. humans are the sole possessors of empathy. I bet, you know, no, if I there wouldn't... are other species around the universe, they, they <laughs> probably take a, a serious objection to that. Let me, let me give a final comment. I think this is a good, very good fit. I always say the future is better than we think, but we have to govern it wisely. This is Gerd Leonhard, Futurist. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Check out my videos at gertube.com on YouTube.